Today we start a brand new study of the New Testament book of Titus. And like all first century letters, it begins with the names of some people. And I know, right there, immediately I know what you're thinking. You're, you're just looking, I'm going, why do we have to spend time on a bunch of old dead people? Thank you so much for asking. It's an excellent question. Um, <clears throat> here's why. Because we want to be authentically true and wise, not just unproductive, pretensive humans. Please look in your notes. There's an excellent quote there from the late, great Daniel J. Borston. Open up your bulletin in your notes. You'll see this quote. Borston said, trying to plan for the future without a sense of the past is like trying to plant cut flowers. Close quote. It's fake. If you don't do the hard work getting to know the real people and ideas of the past, especially when dealing with Scripture, then you know what happens? You just get caught in a cycle of short-term, rootless Christianity. Maybe, let me put it this way. This may be a better way to put why we need to do what we're going to do today. By refusing to learn from these old people from the past, we are making ourselves into those scentless, garish, fake flowers that gather dust in cheap restaurants. Okay? Is that what you want to be? Do you want to be plastic, yes or no? Do you want to be shallow, yes or no? All right, well, if not, then you and I need to do the fun Hard work of becoming learners, learners who dig into the lives of these people in the Bible. That way, we can know how to live in the present. So, as Richard Holmes wrote in his book, The Long Pursuit, the learner must physically pursue his biographical subject through the past. Physically pursue. So, let's start our pursuit. I, I think you're going to be astounded at how interesting and life-changing this is. Let's start by meeting our biographical subjects. Turn to the book of Titus in your New Testament. Let's read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, uh, or part of verse 5. Titus is right after the Thessalonian and Timothy books. You get to Titus, go to chapter 1, 1 through 5. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his message in the proclamation that I was entrusted with by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And we'll stop there and pick up from there next time. Our first important personage is Paul. You and I could discuss Paul all day long and, and not even scratch the surface of this man. Let, let me just summarize this way. I think, it's, I think that this is the person, this is the thinker and teacher most responsible for your Western society. Okay? Three things you need to know about Paul, just three summary facts. First of all, he was a committed Hebrew. He was trained by, by the foremost rabbi of his day, by the great Gamaliel. He, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, but, but that's not all he was. Paul was also a Roman citizen. In fact, he was expert, and I do mean expert, at Roman thought and rhetoric. In, in my opinion, his rhetoric in law cases in the book of Acts is, is so perfect, it is better than Kikoros, who, who was considered the greatest orator of Rome in Roman law. He is a Roman genius, but that's not all either. Paul is also very, very Greek in his speech patterns. In fact, he was educated at what we would today call Tarsus University, which was a center of Hellenic philosophy. Okay, so isn't that amazing 
This is a leader for all the peoples. All the worldviews of the day are wrapped up in Paul. But none of that is of primary importance, at least not according to his own intro bio here. Look, look, look at how he starts his curricular vitae. This is really significant. He's going to say, first off, the most important thing about him, look how he describes himself. Paul, a slave of God. He calls himself a bond slave of God. The Greek word he uses is doulos. If you have studied with me before, you've likely heard me explain this term because it appears very often in the New Testament, and it's a very important word. And you get to say it today, boys and girls. You get to learn doulos. On the count of three, you get to say doulos. One, two, three. Doulos. Very good. Um, today, I'm going to try a slightly new way to explain what a doulos is. Maybe this will help, help us grasp this important word. When I was a young boy... I spent a quarter of my allowance every week on a comic book, okay? I would ride my bike to the store. I would buy a comic book. My favorites were Flash and Batman and Robin, okay? That's what I bought mostly. Um, in those days, in the Batman and Robin comics, young Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Robin, was always described as the ward of Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman, that meant this. That meant that the law placed the orphan Robin under the legal authority of Bruce Wayne, Batman was the parent figure, Robin was the child. As such, Robin always worked to partner with Batman in Batman's important work. Robin was dedicated to the cause, and he, he obeyed Batman unquestioningly back in those days in the comics. That original version of Robin is pretty close to a doulos. You see, Roman slave masters had complete legal authority over their slaves, but but it's hard for us to get our heads around because it was such different slavery than what we think of. It was not racially based, and it was, it was almost never permanent. A, a person could and often did earn their way out of slavery. Many people chose to be in slavery for different reasons and then work their way from it. So just as Robin in the comics grew up to become his own independent Nightwing, so Roman Dulos could serve well and they could earn their independence. However, this is what you need to know. If they had a really great master, a freed man, who, a doulos who earned his freedom, could stay on willingly as an employee. And you ready for this? Most did. The vast majority of Roman slaves who earned freedman status stayed on partnering with and often completely running the business of the master. They chose to stay and fight crime with Batman willingly and freely. I don't know if you know this, God is even cooler than Batman. Okay, And Paul is telling us that he is happy to be God's Robin. He is happy to be the Lord's ward forever. Paul is what each of us should be. He is a bondservant partnering with God in his crime-fighting work, right? Paul's second self-depiction is also telling he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostolos uh, means an, an envoy, an, an, an ambassador. Much of the business, you went to any city in the Roman Empire and you went to the Forum, much of the business in the forum was actually not conducted by the people who were the business owners. It was conducted by their doulos and by their appointed apostolos, who were usually freedmen who had every right and responsibility to start new ventures and enter into new deals on behalf of the master's company. Now, here's what the early church leaders did. This was really brilliant. They very cleverly adopted this whole idea, and they used that word apostolos for those people that God set aside to start the new ventures that were known as Jesus' churches. However, please listen very carefully here. They distinguish between the office of apostle and the spiritual gift 
of apostle. The spiritual gift of apostle was and still is given by God's Spirit to Christians whom God uses to start new adventures, to start new things. You see 1 Corinthians 12, it tells you about that. The office of apostle was reserved specifically for those few men who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ and were personally commissioned by him to start his first churches, okay? Paul possesses both the gift of apostle and the office. No one you ever meet today will have the office of apostle, although many may be granted the gift. If somebody ever tells you, I have the office of apostle, run, okay? Do not pass go. Don't collect $200. Hop on the bus, Gus. They are confused about the Scripture, okay? The Scripture tells us that Paul is the last to hold the office of apostle. And this is a cool bonus. He even shares why he does what he does. Look at your notes. Uh, You will see Paul's reasons for apostling. And yes, I made up that word, but I'm a pastor. We're allowed to do that. So, So, apostling. These are Paul's reasons for apostling. Verses 1 and 2. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. First thing Paul tells us, he works to build up the faith of the chosen. What is is this person doing? What's, uh, what's What's this guy right here doing? What's he doing? He's building. He's building a structure. Actually, it's a, it's a church building that he's putting together. Um, how, about, how about these guys? We can barely see them way up there, but how about these guys? What are they building? Yeah, they're, they're, they're erecting a big overpass. Don't see many of those going up right here, do you? Right? They're, uh, they're, they're, they're building an overpass. And this guy, I don't know if you can tell, but he's, he's erecting a trellis and tying it to his tomato plants so they can grow up healthy and, and, and bear fruit. You do know tomato is a fruit. Do you know that? Yeah, it really is. I think it... Since I don't like them very much, I think it's probably a forbidden fruit, frankly, not an apple. <laughs> that or eggplant. Uh, but anyway, the, um, um, now, now look at Paul. Look at your text. What is, what is Paul building? What, what is his purpose? Faith. He is committed to strengthening the belief of Christians as they follow Jesus Christ in their everyday life. Church buildings are great. We have built some. We will very likely erect more. Roads are wonderful. Gardens are super. But nothing is more significant than helping fellow believers grow strong in their faith in God. Is that how you view your purpose? I think we should. Though though we're not in the office of apostle, you do realize Paul is still an example for us. And we, you and I, we should build up the faith of the people that God has elected and put in his church. So let let me briefly suggest two proven Biblical ways you can build up another person's faith, okay? These, we see these in the Scripture, and, and I have seen them in my experience. First, first way you can build up another person's faith, share the good news of God's provision in your life. When you are in need, and God meets that need perfectly, share it. Tell somebody. Now, certainly, privately, you need to praise God. That, that goes without saying. But you should also share that wonderful news of God's provision publicly. I recently taught from, from Psalm 78, which addresses this. I'd like us to read verse 4 together. Uh, by the way, just so you know, in the context of Psalm 78, the them right there is referring to truth, to, to biblical truths. Okay, So we won't read that part in parentheses, but let's read Psalm 78, 4 together. We will not hide them. But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord 
and his might and the wonders that he has done. Amen. Asaph is making a point here. We build up others' faith by testimony, by telling truth. Secondly, second thing you can do to build up another person's faith, be honest about your pains and the things you don't understand. Throughout the Bible, we are shown these wonderful people who wrestle with God, who ache honestly with Him over His unfolding plan. The the triune God always wins those wrestling matches. You know that, right? He always wins. And doing so, here's what he does. He assures this hurting person who is wrestling with him that he is indeed God and he is indeed good. Paul did this as well. You know, Paul told of a horrible suffering. He didn't tell us what it was, but a horrible suffering that he wrestled with God over. And in that engagement with God, Paul learned that the Lord's grace is sufficient, right? Here's here's what he said. Paul said, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I begged God to take this from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And yes, that is maybe the funniest cartoon I've seen in a long time. You will build up other people's faith if you are honest like that. And you let them see your wrestling matches with God. Now, Paul's second reason for apostling is to edify Christians' knowledge of truth and godliness. Now, we use a lot of different translations in here, and as you look at your translation, you're going to see they they vary fairly, fairly widely on this verse. Here's why. This is one time when the Greek phraseology is a lot more like Latin. Latin can often be read in a couple of different ways, uh, and you have to have context. This This is one that is similar. This can be read in different ways, but here's what we know for sure about this verse. Knowledge of God's truth is somehow connected with godly living. This is the key idea in this book. By the way, it's why our study of Titus is named Truth and Godliness. Think it through. Think it through. If I grow more in knowing what is really true, Paul is saying that will lead me to to live a life moving against the, the cultural stream. Instead of the default for every human, which is ungodly living, I will live in accordance with godliness, with holy living because of the truth that I'm learning. Take it the other way. When I grow in godliness, it draws me ever more deeply into God's truth. You see, the knowledge of truth becomes a self-perpetuating cycle with godliness. What I feed myself gives me the appetite for more. When I was in college, when I was in college, skim milk cost less. In fact, it cost a lot less than whole milk, and the reason was pretty simple. Um, there's about 7% or so of cream that, that is, in, is in the settled milk at the dairy. And, uh, and in whole milk, they put half of that back in to make whole milk. Been doing that for centuries and centuries. They take 3.5% and they use that to make other products. Skim milk means they take all the cream off. They don't fold any of it back in. And they could make a whole lot more money using all that to make the other cream-based products. So they charge less for it. Nowadays, they don't because they've learned you suckers will pay the same for it no matter what. So... Um, <laughs> So back in those days, I was a poor college kid, so I drank skim milk only, and I learned to like it. Uh, it, it, Actually, nothing else really tasted good. I drank only skim milk. A couple years after college, I went and worked at a Christian camp in Germany, and our milk at the camp came directly next door. There was a dairy farm directly next door to the camp, this sweet little dairy farm. And, uh, and they, they had milk every day that the kids we took over, and that was there to refrigerate and drink the next day. 
But the sweet little lady who ran the dairy, she loved the kinder at the camp, and she wanted them to have some best milk. So she folded the whole 7% back in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just folded it back in. First time I ever drank it, I thought I, it was like a liquid milkshake. I thought I would die. But over time, came to realize these Germans are pretty smart. Their cheese is delicious. Their chocolate is great. Their bread is wonderful. And that super whole milk stuff, ooh, that, that's delicious. That is delicious stuff. I grew to love it. I just thought it was fantastic. When I came back to the States, one of the first days I was back, staying with my buddy Andy Regazzi, uh, now Admiral Regazzi, but I was staying with, with uh, Andy, and, uh, and he handed me a glass of skim milk. And I took a drink of that, and I nearly gagged. And I looked up, and I remember what I said. I looked at him, and I said, somebody took hot water and melted a white crayon in this. <laughs> this is awful. Now, I have never gone back to skim milk. Whatever milk you choose to drink is fine, but know this. God never, ever, ever wants us to go back to the cheap skim milk of untruth and ungodliness that is our default setting. He wants us to enjoy a self-perpetuating cycle of truth and godliness. We are to feed ourselves truth so we develop an appetite for godliness and feed our lives in godliness so we develop a self-perpetuating appetite for truth. It's what, it's what Paul's work is all about. Quite frankly, it's what this letter is all about. Paul's first, uh, final goal, his last goal is found atop the right side of our notes. Look to the right side of your notes to establish the hope of eternal life in God's people. Verse 2. In the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. I, I want you to listen really carefully. This expression in verse 2 is absolutely earth-shattering. This, this is one of the most shocking sentences ever to have been written in the history of human thought. And I'm going to try to explain why. The, the, the original term that we render hope is the Greek term elpis. Okay, And Paul says that God guarantees hope of, of eternal life, which, which biblically means life with God, in fellowship with God forever. That is a guaranteed hope. That is not at all what any of the other worldviews thought. Okay, remember, remember Paul's background? His background was, was, was Jewish, Roman, Greek, expert at all the above. Well, let, let's just start with the Greeks, okay? The Greeks in general believed that hope beyond this life was hopeless. That, that's the general Greek belief. There's, there's some slight exception in Plato, but, but I can give you the Greek thought by just reminding you of a story you learned in seventh grade in your English class when you studied mythology, okay? There was a box. We call it what? Anybody remember? Pandora's box. It, there's a number of versions as it went through the centuries. I want to take you back to the earliest versions of that story. All the earliest versions of that story tell this. Zeus gave to mankind a box that contained all the good and all the bad things that could possibly be. And Pandora, whose husband was guarding the box, he was the guardian of the box, she went and opened it. What happened? All the stuff flew out, right? And especially all the negative sin suddenly tainted the world and went everywhere, and it could not be contained. Zeus didn't have the power to put it back in the box. He did give Pandora's husband the power to close the box. He immediately closed the box, and it was sealed forever. could never be opened again. And guess what? One thing was left inside the box. El peace. 
That's the earliest, that is the Greek thought. That's the earliest versions of the story. There is no such thing as lasting hope. El peace is inside the box. No Greek would, would ever have believed this, that there is a guaranteed hope. Um, let, let's go to, the, let's go to the, the Jewish ideas. Paul was trained by Gamaliel, right? Get this. Gamaliel, greatest rabbi of his day, was between him and Hillel, but probably Gamaliel. He never, and he wrote voluminously, and we have a number of his writings. He never used the word hope, not once. You ready for this? All of the rabbinic writings we have, and, and they are legion, that we have that are written between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew in the 400 intertestament years. Get this. The word hope never appears in any of them, not one single time. Ever. Old Testament has hope. Old Testament has a couple of different words that, that are the Hebrew equivalent of El Peace. And the Old Testament talks about guaranteed hope all the time. But the rabbis, the Jewish thought in which Paul was trained, no hope. It was hopeless. And the Romans, the, the, the Romans... I can't even find much thought that they were really even interested in any eternal hope beyond just the glory they found in this life. That's why Stoicism became so very, very popular among the Romans, all right? So Paul looks at all of that background, all of the world thought, and he shatters them. He says these things, these ideas of thinking are just hot water that somebody melted a white crayon in. They are completely wrong. You know what he says? God guaranteed real hope of eternal life for everyone who trusts Jesus. That's why Jesus said this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. You've heard me tell you I'm going away, and I am coming to you. I am coming to you. Do we think about that blessed hope? Do we talk about it? Do we remind each other of how awesomely different God's truth is than everybody else? At, at work, at home, online, we should be honestly rejoicing that we have guaranteed el peace, our, our hope of eternal life with Jesus who is coming for us. All God's people said, amen. amen. That takes us to the next character in our story, which is God. Uh, we're going to cover we're going to cover this fairly quickly, not because it's less important, but because God's the theology is more widely discussed throughout the Bible, and we're more familiar with it. We will learn a lot about God in a short space here. First thing, look at your text: God cannot lie. That may be the most pithy little statement of uh, of, of theology proper ever penned. Can you lie? Yes or no? Can you lie? Please say yes, or else you're lying. Yeah. You, you, uh, <laughs> yes, we can, and we do sickeningly often. Uh, lying is possible ever since Satan first fell. Then he lied to humans who adopted lying immediately, and untruth has been ubiquitous ever since. But look, God cannot lie. Chew on that for a minute, would you? God made us in his image, but he is so far beyond us, his ways not our ways, his thoughts not our thoughts, that he can allow for untruth during, during this present season of eternity that we call time, and yet he cannot participate in the lying even though he does participate in time. Not that he just won't, he can't. He is the only entity you will ever deal with that is always and unerringly truthful. God also promised eternal life, which we've already discussed. He did so as Savior. 
Do you see that title at the end of verse 3? Savior implies the need of being saved. Ever since that scene of lies in the Garden of Eden, we humans have been undeserving of a relationship with God. We have needed saving. That's why Paul summarizes the universal Gentile condition this way. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You were without hope and without God in the world. What a mess. But... But God promised eternal life through Messiah, the Savior. Read with me. Galatians chapter 4, you read the underlying text. We'll do verses 3 through 6. We were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, you get the full adoption as sons. <laughs> what a deal. Okay, back to the text. And because, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. God is Savior to all who trust Jesus. He becomes our true daddy. Amen? And in Titus 1.3, as, as well as in Galatians, we learn that God manifested his word in time. At the, at the proper time. Now, let's think about time for a minute. I want you to think about time in biblical writing. Here's one thing you need to know. Every time you run into the concept of time in biblical writing, it is always going to point to God's sovereignty. It is always going to point to Him as the ultimate, ultimate sovereign king. For example, look at your text in Titus. It's really beautiful the way verse 2 rolls into verse 3. God's plan was set up in eternity past. That is, it was crafted outside of time-space. It is beyond our control. It is outside our sphere. But his plan is revealed in the fullness of time, in time-space, in his choice. You see how he emphasizes that? His choice of time. God reveals his salvation. And then we're granted eternal life that takes us beyond the limits of time-space as well. That's why, that's why John Newton ended his song, Amazing Grace, this way. He ended it, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Newton understood whenever you talk about time, it always points you to God's sovereignty and his praise. That's why he didn't end the song this way. When we've been there 10,000 years because of what we've done, we've no less days to sing our praise than when we'd first begun, Right? That would be absurd. God is the one who elects and saves and works beyond time space as well as in and through it. He is the sovereign Savior. God also entrusted his word to Paul. In fact, look at your text. He commanded Paul to share his scriptural truth. Now, again, I know we are an office of apostles who write scripture, but there are many biblical parallels with us. We are also sent. Do you know that? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been entrusted with the gospel. You have been blessed by prophecy. You have been promised eternal life. That's why Paul would summarize our own commissioning this way. Look what he says, 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, you you know what he did? For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Truth. And godliness. So, what are we going to do with that commission? 
Will we share God's word? Will we take the opportunities God grants us to share the good news that you just read up there on that screen? Are we going to bring people to church and to Bible studies? Are we going to follow through? Last few months, we talked about reaching the thousands and thousands that are moving into your backyard. Are we going to follow through with that and share the good news with them? Yes or no? I just want a simple answer. Are we going to do that? Yes or no? All right. If the answer is yes, then let me show you some tough love the way a leader should. All right? I want you to close your eyes just for a second. Everybody, just close your eyes just for a second, okay? Every eye closed. Now, if you have shared the good news of Jesus with someone during the past 60 days, please raise your hand. You have shared Christ in the last two months with someone. Raise them up really high. Thank you. Okay, keep them up. Now, if you have invited someone to church or life group or some such meeting over the past two months, you raise your hand. Keep the same hands up. Thank you. One more. Last one. If you have shared a verse of Scripture with someone who's been in need during the past two months, raise your hand. All right. Okay, hands down. You can open your eyes. You, you, you know all that matters. All that matters is each person's own obedience, right? So that was just for you. But I do want to encourage you. About, about 80% of the hands were up in here, which is great. However, God has entrusted us with his word. So let's get that up to 100%. Deal? All right. In fact, let's work with God's spirit to make us more like our last character. The last of our biographical characters is Titus. We're introduced to him in verses 4 and 5. 4 and 5. To Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. Three things we learned. First, Titus is Paul's true child in a common faith. You know, Paul, um, Paul led Titus to faith in Christ, and yet, this is really cool. The apostle treats Titus with immense respect. In fact, he relies very heavily on this man. They are partners in a common cause, and this is especially cool because Titus, I don't know if you know, he's a Greek. He is a, he is a raw Gentile, and, and Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, w- I was blessed this past week to, uh, to host another church's pastor who came over and had tea and, and uh, some good chocolate together, and we, we talked theology for a couple of hours, and um, we, we had a blast. We agreed on a lot, which was really fun. We disagreed on some areas where he's wrong, but... Um, <laughs> But the best part of it was, the best part of it was we enjoyed real kinship. We are God's children in a common faith. This man and I both know the true Jesus of Scripture as our Savior. And you know, you know what that does. That produces a family bond that is stronger than any force on earth because it will outlast the earth. And then, and then just another example. Uh, yesterday, Saturday, I got to spend some time at a wonderful wedding. I went to a wedding way out of town. Uh, the best man at my wedding his daughter was getting married, and, um, and it was delightful uh, in many, many ways. But maybe one of the most sweet parts of that whole time was that I got to spend some time talking to a guy I had not seen in years, a, a very wise man who years ago spent a lot of energy just pouring wisdom into me. And I started thinking about this text as I was talking with him, and I was hit by the point that in Jesus' family, that is all meant to be the norm. We mentor people. We are discipled by people, we enjoy our peers, and it all bonds us together in our common faith. Amen? That's beautiful. Titus also receives grace and peace from God's apostle. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the classical era, when you wrote a letter, um, at the end of your beginning, (laughs) uh, at the end of your introduction to your letter, it was very common to give a benediction. 
to give a, a blessing of some kind. Paul's blessing is, is really, really cool. It, it basically is Christianity in a nutshell. Paul blesses Titus with grace and peace. I absolutely love the way Scottish pastor David Campbell comments on this. Look at what David Campbell says. This is really great. He says, as a Christian, Titus had already known God's grace. It was by grace he'd been saved, been, been justified. But grace is needed not only at the outset of the Christian life. We need it all our days. It, it is by grace, for example, the work of salvation continues in, in sanctification. In all its parts, salvation is the fruit of grace, of God's unmerited favor. We also need grace in the sense of strength or help, grace to love, grace to forgive, gr grace to pray, grace to serve the Lord, to endure affliction, to persevere to the end. Knowing that, Paul prayerfully wishes grace for Titus. Now listen to this question from Dr. Campbell. Shouldn't that be our prayerful wish for others as well? Shouldn't we be wishing grace on everyone? Paul also blesses Titus with peace. You know, like every human, Titus surely struggled with anxiety and fear and depression, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But Paul's desire for Titus is the reality of Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. To quote Dr. Campbell, shouldn't that be our prayerful wish for others as well? Shouldn't we be wishing everyone we meet a blessing of grace and peace? I think we should. And we often don't. Finally, Titus has a mission. His mission is to reform churches. Titus is supposed to go to Crete down here. He's, he's been up in Greece. He's to go down here to Crete and, and put things in order to make right what is undone in the churches there. The, the Greek word epidio means to, uh, to reform. It means to set straight. It, it, it literally means to, to seven, eight, lay them straight. That's why we often translate it set in order or, or set right. The churches on the huge island of Crete apparently are in need of some serious reform. So God sends Titus. Why Titus? Why send him? Let, let me share with you what little we know. Titus was obviously very important to Paul in his work. I just want to share one, one scripture with you here that I, th I think probably tells you everything you need to know about how important he was to Paul. Uh, Paul's writing a letter called, that we call 2 Corinthians, and, uh, and he's, describing, he's actually describing a time when Paul messed up, okay? Or, or very likely this is a mess up by him. And, and you look at the description, we'll leave the mess up alone, I just want you to look at Titus's role. He says this, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, the Lord opened a door for me. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus. So I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. He left. Concerned about Titus, Paul cut off promising ministry in Troas to head for Macedonia in hopes of finding his partner. This is the only example of that in all of Paul's relationships. Titus is a really significant person to him. And I think, I just want to show you one other scripture. I think Paul gave Titus the ultimate compliment later in that letter of 2 Corinthians. Um, by the way, Titus is the person that took 2 Corinthians back to the church at Corinth. Um, and and the, the occasion for the letter was that um, Paul was dealing with the, grumpy, the inevitable grumpiness of a church that had been going through a capital campaign, okay? They'd just been going through a capital fundraising campaign that always makes people grumpy, and so Paul wrote 2 Corinthians about that issue, and look what he says in chapter 12. Did any of the men I sent to you take advantage of you? When I urged Titus to visit you and other brother with him, did Titus take advantage of you? No. For we have the same spirit and walk in each other's steps, doing things the same way. Why send Titus to Crete as the person to epidithoo to, to reform things? 
because of who he is. He's a remarkable guy. Edmund Hebert tells us why God sent Titus, and by the way, why you and I need to be more like him. Look at this. This is a great summary. Um, Titus, uh, these scanty references to Titus reveal that he was trustworthy, efficient, a valued young co-worker. He possessed a forceful personality, was resourceful, energetic, tactful, skillful in dealing with difficult situations, and effective in conciliating people. So, you know what we just read? It tells us that with God, Paul and Titus are the original Reformation. They're the original church reformers, 1,400 plus years before Luther and Calvin. Guess what that means? That means that entropy has always been an issue even in the churches in the very first century. Every church of every era must always be about reformation, always. Did you know, did you guys hear about this? Researchers at the University of Maryland and some from Harvard have recently created something they're calling time crystals. It's a weird name, but they're calling them time crystals. Let me just summarize it this way. These things appear to be quantumly different in terms of matter from all of the other matter around them. Quantumly different from all the other matter around them. Uh, Here's what they did. The scientists took ions out of their natural state, and they used either microwaves or lasers to, to prod those ions. And when they prodded these ions that were out of their natural state, they grouped together, and they formed this incredible bond. The ions formed this bond And get this, that bond is continually morphing. It's the first example we've ever done of really creating perpetual motion. It is continually forming and reforming. Now, when I read about that research, I was astounded. And, And not so much by the research because it may ultimately prove fruitless. I was astounded by the parallel to the book of Titus. In Titus, God prods us with his word and with his spirit so that we form a type of community that is quantumly different than the world around us. Do you know what our church is supposed to be? It's supposed to be a place and time of perpetual reformation. And far from fruitless, that reforming changes everything. That's the purpose of this letter, to reform churches and, as we'll see, the Christians who comprise those churches. And and that's why we're studying Titus during this year. Remember, our annual theme this year is to be reformed. So, So join me in prayer. Let's pray for reformation in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for all of the Christians here that we will be about the business of reformation in our lives, in our church. Let us be reformed all the time in truth and godliness, please. We submit ourselves to you for that. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is studying with me that is not a believer in Christ. I ask you to draw them to you right now. Listen, Jesus invaded time and space to die on the cross for your sin. And he paid the price and rose from the dead so that anyone who trusts him has everlasting, el peace, the hope of everlasting life with God. You trust him right now. Believe, put your trust on Jesus. If you just prayed to trust Jesus and you're in this auditorium, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Let me rejoice with you. Good for you. Amen. Praise God. Father, I praise you for these believers, new and old. I thank you for them. I ask you to encourage each of us that we might be about reformation. Thank you for the offering we're about to give, which is what you use to to reform not just us, but all our ministries that you do work in all around the world. It's an honor to be a part of it. 
And we ask you to bless this offering in Jesus' name. Amen.